Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning once more and ask for your blessing upon this time as we seek to hear what your word has to say to our hearts this morning. Oh Lord, we pray that you would preserve our lives according to your word. Teach us your decrees this morning and let us understand your teachings. Help us by your Holy Spirit to listen to your voice this morning and become more like your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the end of our series in Genesis chapter 3. We've been slowly working through it and looking at the fall of Adam and Eve. This occurs after God has created uh, the world, the heavens and the earth in six days, and it is all very good, and he created Adam and Eve, and then he gave them a command. He gave them a command not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they have then, we see in chapter 3, have listened to the serpent, well, Eve in particular, and then they have seen that the fruit is good to eat, it is pleasing to the eye, and also a source of gaining wisdom and knowledge of good and evil, and they have then taken and eaten. And as a result, they have felt the consequences of sin. They have seen their nakedness, they have sought to sow fig leaves to cover themselves, they have created barriers between themselves now, their relationship isn't what it was, and we've also seen that the relationship with God has been ruined as well. They now hide from God, we saw, and God has come seeking them. That's what we looked at last week in verse 9 of Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God calls to the man and says, where are you? What are you up to? And this morning we're going to look at verses 10 through to 13 and see the response of Adam and Eve as God calls to them and asks them what are they up to, what have they done, we see their responses that are given in verses 10 through to verse 13. What comes as a confession from them? What do they do in response to God's call? And so firstly we see that Adam answers God in verse 10 by speaking about the consequences of his sin. In verse 10 we read, He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God has said, where are you? And Adam is quite happy to talk about the fear and nakedness that have come from his sin. He talks about the fact that he is afraid of God, so he hides from God. He's also happy to talk about the nakedness that he knows as a result of his sin. But notice what he doesn't do in verse 10. He doesn't specifically speak about his sin, the cause of his fear, the cause of his nakedness. Oh no, that doesn't get a mention. Instead, he speaks about the consequences of his sin. And what then does he do when God investigates a little further? Well, we read in verse 12 that he then starts to blame others. But I'll read from verse 11. Verse 11, after Adam has spoken about his nakedness and his fear, it says that God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And then we see the man's response. The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. What is his response? As God investigates further, he's spoken about the consequences of his sin. Now he speaks about others and their involvement in his sin. At the end of the sentence, yes, we do see, he says, I ate the fruit, I have done what you commanded me not to do, but he's quick to blame others. Who does Adam seek to blame for his sin? 
Verse 12, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Who's to blame? It's the woman. She's the one that actually got it off the tree, technically speaking. I ate it after she got it from the tree. If she wasn't here, then I wouldn't have sinned. And so whose fault is it that she's here? Well, it's actually your fault too, God. What does he say in verse 12? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So who's to blame for my sin? Well, Eve is very obvious, but ultimately you, God. If you'd given me a better wife that didn't go plucking fruit off trees that she shouldn't and didn't listen to serpents, then everything would be okay. It's not really my fault. And then God turns his attention to the woman. In verse 13, what do we read? Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And what is her response? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She is admitting the sin. I ate is there at the end of the sentence. But what else does she do? She seeks to blame somebody else as well. Who does she seek to blame? The serpent deceived me, she says. What are Adam and Eve trying to do here when they confess their sin to God? When God comes calling and asks them about what they have done, what are they trying to do? Well, we see that they are trying to play the victim card. That instead of confessing that they're the perpetrators of sin, that they're the perps, they actually claim to be the victims. That it's all Eve's fault, it's all God's fault, and it's all Satan's fault. It's got really nothing to do with me It's somebody else's fault. They point to the consequences of sin and they plead the extenuating circumstances that are surrounding their sin of other people and so they really aren't to blame for their sin. They have suffered, they're now hiding from God, they're afraid of God, they are naked, they feel the shame. And so really they don't need to confess their sin. They've atoned for their sin in some way, and really somebody else is to blame. And so when we look at Adam and Eve here this morning, and we examine our own hearts, we see that we are very much like our first parents. In what ways? Well, we're often happy to admit the consequences of our sin without actually confessing our sin in order to get God's pity, that we somehow made up for our sin by the pain that we felt as a result of our sin. Talk about how sick we are, how our bodies are in pain, the suffering we've experienced, or the fears that we have. Or we talk about the way that other people are treating us badly as a result of our sin. They're gossiping about me, or they're hurting me even physically in this world. And so I've suffered for my sin, and so that's what you should be focusing on, God, the suffering that's come about with my sin, and I'm not really needing to confess to you my sin because I've suffered so much. Or we seek to blame others, which is the most common thing that we do when we're confronted by our sin. We seek to blame other humans, for example. In what ways? Well, we like to blame our family and not just our spouse. Uh, It's interesting that Adam really only had a few people that he could blame, that he knew of. One was God, one was Eve, And another is Satan. And all three got some of the blame of the eating of the forbidden fruit. 
But of course, we today, we have a lot more people in our lives so that we can blame many others, including other family members that Adam and Eve did not have uh, to blame. We can blame not only our spouse, but we can blame our parents. Adam and Eve didn't have parents to blame, but we are quite happy to blame our parents for the sins that we commit or the way that we are today is all really due to my parents. It can be my bad upbringing. My parents were so bad to me. They hurt me in so many ways. And so that is why I behave the way I do today. Or it could be that our parents were actually too good to us. They spoilt me. And that is why I am the way I am today. Uh, CNN, the news uh, company, it reported that in 2013, a teenager named Ethan Couch was in court for driving drunk, which resulted in the death of four people. So this teenager was driving drunk and killed four people as a result. His lawyers defended him using what has become known as the affluenza defence. Not influenza, affluenza, affluence. His lawyers claimed he was too rich to understand that his actions had consequences. He'd been treated too well as a child and believed that rich people were privileged people and laws didn't actually apply to them and so therefore he was not guilty of killing those people. He just didn't understand because his parents had spoiled him. And we are too quick also to blame our parents. We can find some reason why our parents have treated us either too well or too badly. And so our sin today is not really our fault. It's the fault of our parents. Who else can we blame? Well, we can look in our families and see our siblings there. They're easy to blame, and we know that from a very young age, that we can blame our family. It was my bad brother who had the idea of drawing on the wall. I would never think of drawing on walls. It wasn't until my brother came along and suggested that it would be a good idea to take that permanent marker to the wall. Or we can even blame our children if we are parents. We can blame parents, and then we can go down the ladder and blame our children. I read a very good example of this in this little Christian book on uh, Christian parenting. It's called Loving the Little Years, and it's written by Rachel Jenkovic. Rachel Jenkovic. And uh, I've been reading this one to Jill. Uh, We read a chapter each week. And this is uh, her account of the quickness with which she can blame her children. She says, something we discovered when we had twins is the concept of bulk effect. Our OBGYN told us in advance that having twins, we already had two children at the time, was not going to make us twice as busy, but rather exponentially busier. And he was right. So they had two children, then they got twins, and so now they've got four. Let's say that you are trying to get ready for church, and one child is disobedient. Something petty, like not putting on their shoes when you've told them to. They wandered off and got distracted and loitered in the living room for a minute. In that minute, the baby starts crying. You see the clock and realise that you are going to be late. You can't find the wet wipes or the baby's shoe, which you know you put on the table last night. The baby is still screaming, so you're trying to rock the seat with your foot while doing the hair of your middle child, who will not stop bouncing. You are shouting out at your husband to see if he knows what happened to the baby's shoe probably punctuated with, sit still, stop, don't wiggle. As it turns out, your husband is out looking for someone's lost shoe in the car where they're prone to remove them, so you get no response. You begin to have evil thoughts about shoes. You start feeling the pressure. 
if you know what I mean. The tension is mounting. You may very well be feeling hot and sweaty while your coffee is getting cold on the counter, untouched. At this moment, the child who didn't put his shoes on comes wandering back, refreshed with a nice spell of magnet doodling. What do you think happens? You take the shred of guilt and then harness onto it the stress of the whole situation. You make your child the scapegoat, a way for you to release all your tension and stress onto someone who you feel deserved it. He did, after all, disobey. Your massive overreaction was just because disobeying is wrong. So this neat little trick is happening in your head. The consequences for his sin go way up and the consequences for yours go way down. It is simply a classic shifting of the blame. The situation is crazy, but you are the person responsible to get the grace to deal with it. Oftentimes you won't even discipline the sin that did occur because you're wanting to leave this situation with the feeling that you were full of grace toward that child who maliciously magna doodled. Next time you say you will get spankings, this time you will just have to bear the weight of my discontent, my anger and my lack of self-control. I will vent on you instead of dealing with myself. So let that be a lesson to you. For those of you who are parents, you can relate. It is so easy to take your sin and the feelings of guilt about it and vent on those who are, yes, guilty in some respect, but you make them feel the consequences of your wrath You blame them primarily for what is going on rather than your own silly fault. But we don't just blame our family. We can blame our parents, we can blame our children, we can blame our siblings, but we like to blame other people outside the family as well. Adam couldn't blame anyone outside his family really, um, any other people, because he only had Eve, but we have lots of people outside our family that we can blame for our sin. That driver, if he hadn't cut me off, then I wouldn't have sworn in my own vehicle and made a rude gesture with my hand. It's all his fault that I spoke in that way and gestured in that way. If my boss paid me better, then I wouldn't have embezzled company money. If he just gave me what I was owed by him, what I think I was owed, then I wouldn't have stolen from the company. It's really his fault that I was forced to steal We can even blame other Christians, other people in the family of God. And a good example of this uh, actually comes from the scriptures uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Turn with me there now, 1 Samuel 13, page 273 of your church Bibles. The context is uh, Saul is king of Israel and he is meant to be on good terms with Samuel the prophet who has anointed him as king. And he is meant to be waiting for Samuel to come so that he can go and do battle with the Philistines. And on page 273, 1 Samuel chapter 13, 1 Samuel 13, we'll pick it up at the middle of, oh no, we'll pick it up from verse 7. It's an awkward paragraph break in our church Bibles there, but we'll pick up from verse 7. Verse 7, some Hebrews, that's the Israelites, even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal. And all the troops with him were quaking with fear. So Saul's very scared with his troops at Gilgal. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, that's the prophet, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. 
So he's there waiting to go and do war. Samuel's not a show, a show, uh, no show after seven days. And so the Israelites are starting to scatter. So he said, that's Saul, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. So rather than Samuel offering up the sacrifice, Saul has taken it upon himself to offer the sacrifice. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel, that's the prophet, arrived and King Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul sinned. Samuel asks, what have you done? Very much like God in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. What is it you have done? And what does Saul say? Well, he blames some other people. Look with me at verse 11 there. Who does he blame? There's actually three groups that he blames. He says, in verse, uh, it's, we'll pick it up at the beginning of verse 11. What have you done, asked Samuel? Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering. If the Israelites had just stayed put, I wouldn't have offered up that sacrifice. Who else is to blame? And that you did not come at the set time. It's your fault, Samuel. It's the Israelites' fault for scattering. And also, we can get another third group, we can get a third group in there. And that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. If the Philistines hadn't been assembling and looking like they were going to come down on us, I wouldn't have offered the burnt offering. Three groups are to blame. Samuel, the Israelites, and the Philistines. This is a person who's meant to be king of Israel, of the people of God, and he's blaming other people within the kingdom. He's blaming the Israelites, he's blaming Samuel, and he's blaming the enemy. But we can do that too. We can blame other people at church for our sin. The reason why we have friction with somebody else in the church, it's their fault, not mine. The reason I have problems with the leaders in the church, it's the leaders' fault. If they were just better leaders, I wouldn't have behaved so badly. We're all too quick to blame other Christians. So we can blame other people. We can blame people in our family. We can blame people who are outside our family. And we can blame people within the family of God. We can also follow Eve's example and blame Satan. We're very good at blaming the devil. If we understand that there is a devil, Satan does exist. And people like to say, the devil made me do it. It wasn't me who did it. It was ultimately the devil who made me do it. The reason I am overindulged at the dessert buffet... It's all because of Satan. The reason I spoiled the night by eating too much and then throwing up on the table is all because of Satan. It's really not my fault. And then, of course, the most serious one that we like to blame, the, the worst one for us to do, to blame, is, of course, we can blame God. We can blame other people. We can blame Satan. But we do like to blame God. It's your fault, God, for the way that I sin. And often has to do with the body that he has given us. 
that we blame God. We know that ultimately we haven't got our own body, we haven't made it up ourselves, that it's God who has given us the body that we have, and so we see how much of our flesh is the cause of the particular sins that we may struggle with. We don't all struggle with the same sins, but we recognise that's because we all have different bodies, different temperaments, different ways of thinking, different desires, and so we then can blame God for the body that he gave us. It's your fault, God, because I have an addictive personality. It's your fault because I'm too smart or I'm too dumb or I've got too much energy or I've got too little energy. That's why I don't do what I'm supposed to do. It's your fault, God, that I'm too depressed. It's your fault, God, that I'm too motivated, which gets me into trouble. It's my genes that made me do it. It's my illness that you have inflicted me with. So it's all your fault, God. And ultimately, whenever we blame anybody else, they're created being by God. And so that fault line does run back to God. We've got to be very careful about shifting the blame of our sin to anybody else because ultimately we're shifting it back to God himself. And so if we try hard enough, we can always find a twist to our sin and claim we are the victim. Which are your favourite excuses for not confessing sin to God when he comes calling? When you're convicted of your sin and you feel that guilt... What do you like to use as an excuse so that you are the victim, not the perpetrator? What suffering do you like to claim as the atonement for your sin, the consequences of your sin, that then means you don't have to confess? Or who do you like to blame for your sin so that you don't need to confess? You may be saying this morning, well, why is it hard? Why is it wrong for me to play the victim card? Well, I'll give you two reasons. One... Whenever you blame somebody else, you create further division between you and that person. The sin that you commit creates division between you and other people that you sin against and also against God. You create division with you and God. And if you start blaming other people, and particularly if they hear it, you create even further division with them. Do you think Eve was really happy when Adam said, it's the woman you put here with me that gave me the fruit and I ate it? Do you think she went, oh, my darling husband? It is, oh, 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 I've really led him astray. No, she gets distanced from him, even more distanced. And when he says, it's you who put her with me here, Lord, do you think that brings him closer to God? Or do you think it distances him from God? When we play the victim by blaming others, we create further division between us and those that we blame. Another reason why we shouldn't play the victim? Because it brings about no forgiveness with God, just more culpability. James 1 verse 13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, his own evil desire, not God's fault, your own evil desire, you're dragged away and enticed. It's your own fault when you sin. Yes, there are circumstances around you which may lead you to have a greater struggle as you try to resist that sin. 
But when you sin, it is your own fault, and you cannot blame God. And so when you play the victim, it doesn't bring about forgiveness of sins. If you think that you don't need to confess, you can just tell God about how terrible your life is and how horrible everybody else is and how they've led you to sin, that doesn't bring about forgiveness. All that brings about is greater culpability. It doesn't save you from hell to play the victim. If anything, all it does is turn up the heat that you'll experience in hell because you're committing further sin by blaming everybody else. And by seeking to atone for your sin by your suffering, which is never going to atone for your sin. So Adam and Eve here this morning give us a very good lesson of what not to do when you sin. Don't claim that you're the victim. That is a bad example to follow. So what should you do? What is a good example of what you should do when you sin? Well, I know of... Well, there's many examples in the scripture, but one of my favorites is comes from Psalm 51 from David. Adam and Eve give us an example of what not to do. I think King David gives us an example of what to do. Turn with me there now, page 562 of the Black Church Bible, Psalm 51. Psalm 51, which David wrote after... He had committed adultery with Bathsheba. The superscription of the psalm actually tells us that. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. God has come calling in the form of Nathan the prophet. Where are you, David? What have you done? And this is the response of David once he admits his sin. Psalm 51, reading from verse 1, page 562. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. And then he goes on to ask the Lord for cleansing. That is a confession of sin. Where's the blame shifting that's going on there? It's not there. He's admitting, I am the sinner. I am the one who has done wrong. And not just wrong against Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite and the kingdom that he's meant to be ruling over. He says, against you I have sinned. He acknowledges his sin before God. Now that may seem a bit elaborate and you're not quite sure how you could come up with such a, uh, a poetic way of confessing your sin. You say, oh, it's too hard then to confess my sin to God. It's so much easier to shift the blame. Well, there's an easier one that was given to us before from Luke 18. What did the tax collector do when he came before God? Have mercy on me, a sinner. And what did Jesus say? He said, that man went home justified before God, right with God. What did he say? Have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm a sinner. I admit it. I've done wrong. God, have mercy on me. 
Now, you may not think that you can pray an elaborate prayer like Psalm 51. Beautiful prayer. It's good to read through it and pray it to the Lord. But you can all say, have mercy on me, a sinner, to God. And if you do so, then you will be justified. You'll be right before God. Through Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. It's a crazy thing about the way that we try to play the victim when forgiveness of sins is available for us if we just admit the sin. Through Jesus Christ, he has paid for our sins. And God stands there ready to forgive. But instead, we behave like Adam and Eve and try and blame everybody, including God and Satan, for our sin rather than experiencing the forgiveness of our sin. So if you've never honestly confessed to God that you are a sinner, don't delay, do it now. Stop saying yes, but, as Adam and Eve did. Yes, but I've suffered so much, so really I don't need to say sorry, Lord. Or yes, but, God, ultimately you're to blame for my sin, so I don't really need to say sorry. Don't do that to our loving, gracious, heavenly Father who stands ready to forgive. Blame him for your sin. When he has done so much, he gave his only son. And Jesus himself laid down his life. He humbled himself even to death on a cross so that you could be forgiven. And then you're going to blame him for your sin rather than confess and say sorry and ask for mercy and experience the forgiveness that you so desperately need. Don't do it to God. Confess your sin. And I can't help but also tell you this morning, not just to confess your sin, but keep an eye out for future sin and be ready to confess it as well. We need to stop saying that other people are to blame. Stop following in the footsteps of Adam and Eve if we are to end the cycle of sin and receive forgiveness. We need to watch out for our minds and how they will quickly excuse our sin. And they'll quickly say that we're not the perpetrators. We're not the perps. We're the victims in all of this. You may confess your sin to God today, but be ready to do it again, because tomorrow you will sin again, and the day after, and the day after, until you go to glory. Thankfully, our bodies will be transformed, renewed, and will no longer be able to sin. But until that time comes, watch out. For the blame shifting, the victimhood that you like to play and get ready to confess your sin. Keep short accounts with the Lord. Confess quickly and rapidly and he is graciously willing to forgive if we come to him and say we're sorry. Let's come to him now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as a God who knows all things, including all our sins. You know our sins better than we do ourselves. Lord, we come before you and thank you that you have convicted us of our sin, that you have come and said, where are you? What state are you in? And then asked us specifically about certain sins. As we look at your word, we see your standard of holiness. We see your laws and we see that we have broken them and we feel convicted. We feel the guilt and the shame upon our heads. The Lord, we must confess that we are also sorry for often shifting the blame for our sin. As we see your laws and feel convicted, we like to blame others. We like to blame Satan. We like to blame other people that you have blessed us with. And we like to blame yourself, which is terrible, O oh God.
How could we blame a loving, gracious, heavenly Father? So, Lord, we confess that we don't own, not only sin against you, but we also sin in shifting the blame. And we ask for your forgiveness this morning. Help us to confess rightly, Lord. Have mercy on us sinners here this morning and forgive us by Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.